0: Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, or just trying to rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borelessa, and this podcast came from my passion for neuroscience and psychology, and their interaction with career and personal development. I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals, and asking them to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, But I do hope that their stories will inspire you on your path to greater success and fulfillment in your career. Here are some highlights of today's episode.
1: The bottom line is this. When you are interviewing, you are equipping your interviewer to tell your story to someone else. These crucial conversations are actually invitations to problem solve. You're inviting the other to collaborate with you to fix the problem. There is no right way to communicate. There's certainly better ways and worse ways, but there's no one right way. Being nervous in communication is part of the human condition. We can, however, learn to manage it so it doesn't manage us. Know your audience. It's about them. It's not about you.
0: Welcome to Episode 62 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. Our guest today is Matt Abrahams. Before we begin, I want to thank all the supporters of the podcast. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Do subscribe, like, and share. It does make such a difference. Please note that in this episode, we touch on mental health and wellness topics, purely in general terms. If you have specific issues or concerns, please contact a suitable professional. Now back to the show. Matt is a leading expert in communication with decades of experience as an educator, author, podcast host, and coach. As a lecturer in organizational behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business, he teaches popular classes in strategic communication and effective virtual presenting, and he hosts a popular award-winning podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart, The Podcast. He is the author of Think Faster, Talk Smarter, and his previous book, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, has helped thousands of people manage speaking anxiety and present more confidently and authentically. Welcome, Matt.
1: Thank you so much, Harsha. I am excited to be with you and to have a good
0: conversation. Thank, thanks so much for taking the time today, Matt. Is there a performer, song, book, or film which you'd like to share, Matt? Oh so wow you, the answer is absolutely
1: yes uh to all of them <laughs> so um my my uh, favorite book you know putting aside the ones i've written which i'm very passionate about uh i love the book uh it's called improv wisdom by Profes- uh, patricia ryan Madsen. it is it's a nonfiction book it's a book to help you be a better person by using and leveraging improvisation um there's a great movie that I love because it's all about communication. It's called Thank You for Smoking. It's a it's an older yeah. movie, um, yeah. uh, but it, it has so much to say about persuasion and influence, um, and, and that can be really uh, impactful. In terms of a performer, uh, unfortunately, he's deceased, but I am a huge fan of Robin Williams. My new yeah. book is about speaking in the moment, and he was amazing at being able to come up with things quickly and and be able to to just get things done immediately.
0: That's a great list. I, I was just expecting one, but well, well you, you, <laughs> you
1: ask me four or five things, I'll give you three or four answers. How,
0: how's that? Fantastic. So, Matt, back to the beginning. You studied psychology at Stanford. Was there a strategy behind that, or did you just like the subject? That's a
1: great question. I stumbled, my whole academic career was me stumbling into what I was passionate about. So I started, I was an undergrad at Stanford. I started thinking I wanted to be a doctor. And then I met chemistry and calculus, and they had a different idea. And at Stanford, they had a way that you could do some of the pre med requirements but not do the main track. And it was called human biology. And it was a combination of social science and biological science. And the very first day of class, they brought out a psychologist and he started lecturing and I fell in love. I fell in love with the subject. I I didn't know that psychology as a social science existed. I thought it was only for people who wanted to be clinicians. Very important. And I'm glad that people do that. But it it just opened up my eyes. So I immediately, literally after that class, went and changed my major to psychology. And then in psychology, I came to study communication. And I realized that communication was a field. Because at Stanford, they only do mass communication, like journalism, television, and things like that. And what I'm interested in really is interpersonal. So my entire academic career was just stumbling on to things that I, I, I became passionate about and studied.
0: But it's it's interesting. Sometimes you're looking at serendipity or things to go in a particular way, and a lot of us sometimes stumble up upon the things that we love love doing, don't we?
1: Absolutely. And in fact, I encourage the students I teach, my own kids, anybody I talk to, to one be open. Locking yourself into a way of thinking is it can be challenging and detrimental in, in certain ways. And and I tell everybody you know opportunity take opportunities when they when they come I I if I have had any success in my career it's because I've been willing to say yes to opportunities doesn't mean I go all along the way but if somebody says hey do you want to learn more about this I say yes the whole podcast I do which has done fairly well and I I thoroughly love jo- doing it was somebody coming to me and said hey what do you know about podcasting do you want it you want to try to explore it and I said sure let's do it and and it turned into be just a wonderful gift to me personally so I I think staying open to opportunities Opportunity, not locking yourself into one way of seeing your career or your life unfold is really important.
0: And I think that's a really interesting point you bring up, Matt, because I think life is, there are full of opportunities out there. You need to almost be open to them, uh, because sometimes I think people almost go around thinking, I'm, I'm not getting the breaks. I'm not getting the opportunities. But actually, if you open yourself up to new opportunities, they are actually always there to some extent. Um, you're sometimes you're actually getting in your own way, aren't you?
1: Absolutely. And, and I talk a lot about getting in your own way. Uh, the in, in the new book I wrote, it's all about speaking in the moment, speaking spontaneously. And one of the things that gets in the way of us being able to answer questions well or give feedback on the spot is the fact that we get in our own way. And we often do that. Um, and so we have to take the time to recognize it and see what happens if if we maybe don't say no. And just say maybe or not yet uh, that that can further us in our career and and personal aspirations.
0: Yeah, no, I I just love that. And I think sometimes just give it a go. It might work, it might not. But what have you lost from taking half an hour to speak to somebody or half a day to try something out, go to a lecture. Yeah, I definitely uh, agree with that that uh, viewpoint. Now, going on to communication, um, you know, like you, I think it's such a massively important thing for your career, but also for your personal life, because it helps you to stand out and you can build these powerful relationships. And, and actually, I think sometimes you meet these amazing people, but because they can't communicate what they stand for, their values or their work, they just don't go ahead in life as maybe other people who are much more sharp-elbowed and who are very good at talking Pocket game, but there's actually no game there. So, where did your interest in communication come from? Was it thinking about how you know, communication and psychology fit together? Because I think that there's a lot of interrelated things going on there,
1: aren't there, Matt? Absolutely. Absolutely. Some people argue that the study of communication is just one version of applied psychology, and people say the the opposite that, that mm-hmm. you know, communication is the vehicle through which we express our psychology. So they're very related. Um, uh, I can trace my interest in communication back to when I was a very young boy uh, two stories come to mind uh, i'll share very quickly both happened when i was between the ages of probably six and nine uh, the first was, uh, where I grew up, uh, in, in a suburb, we, we would do, there would be lots of yard sales or garage sales where people would take things that they no longer wanted and, and sell them for, for cheap to people. And, uh, there was one weekend in particular where my mother had just been frustrated with my brother and me. And she said, we are having a garage sale. She wanted to get rid of all of our stuff. And, and so she instructed my brother and me to write signs announcing our garage sale, but she said, spell it incorrectly. And if you insert a B right in the middle of garage, you get garbage. So while all of our neighbors were having garage sales, we were having a garbage sale and we did phenomenally well. We sold more stuff than anybody else in the neighborhood. And my mother to this day still believes it's as a result of the fact that our sign made us stand out from the rest. I think people felt we were stupid and thought they'd get better deals. It does not matter. What it taught me as a young person was that language, words, communication can influence behavior. And not too long after this, my father, who this is back in the day when people would actually read newspapers uh, in, on actual paper. And my father was chuckling behind the newspaper. I said, what's so funny, dad? And he said, come here. And he was reading the comic strips. And there was a comic strip of a father... Who had his arm around his son, looking at the store that the father owned, and across the store it said "Going Out of Business Sale," and the caption of the comic that was making my father laugh so hard said, "Someday, son, this will all be yours," and I was befuddled. I was like, well, "I don't understand," and my dad <laughs> explained to me that the going out of business sign was a trick. It was a way of marketing. Because people thought they'd get good deals Uh, because it was going out of business. Again, reinforcing this idea that through communication, through language, through words, we could motivate people. So my interest in communication has been long lasting. I just didn't know you could actually study it. And it wasn't until I got to college and grad school that I really understood that you can do rigorous academic research in the field.
0: No, I, I just love those stories. And, and actually talking about, um, sort of you know, with, with communication, I think, uh, fear is something that really, um, inhibits a lot of people. You know, there's this fear of public speaking, fear of communication, fear of doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing. And sometimes I think it's very much you're almost attached to the negative result and that really stops you from doing things.
1: Uh, absolutely. You know, the, our, our perceptions of what's possible get in our way. And so we need to reflect and think about what it is we we can and can't do to, to really help. Uh, and so our mindset matters a lot. In fact, in the new book, I spend uh, four of the six first chapters talking about mindset and how we can adjust our mindset to be more successful.
0: I just love that. What would be helpful um, be, before we go into your book? Mm-hmm. I think for our listeners, um, you know, essentially they're either looking for work or trying to develop in their career. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to sort of maybe go through a few scenarios, which I think uh, where where you can talk about your thoughts. So say if you're attending a networking event um, and you know it's the usual small talk, and you're trying to build connections. And I think sometimes the problem is that people put almost too much pressure on themselves. What are your thoughts on um, those? networking events and and making small talk, Matt?
1: Yeah, so I think small talk gets a really bad rap. I think we need to rebrand small talk. I think small talk is is fantastic. (laughs) I keep referring to my book, and I don't mean to do that, but I I have a whole chapter on small talk because when it comes to spontaneous speaking, it's a big challenge for a lot of people. Here's the value of small talk. It allows you to connect, to learn, to practice things, to find out... uh, avenues of exploration that you might not have known. We often look at it as a necessary evil, uh, but if we embrace it and say, hey, there's good things that can happen here, it can really change uh, our perspective. It comes back to what we talked about a little earlier about looking for opportunities i think small talk and many spontaneous communication situations are opportunities for us to grow to learn to expand and we have to we have to embrace it that way that said there are some specific things we can do to make it easier for ourselves and for the others we talk to but networking is critical in life, but also in career management. I look at my career, you know, before I I was an academic, I worked in high tech for for 10 years. uh, And most of my jobs, in fact, I would say every single one of my jobs came through a connection I had, either at the place I ended up working or through somebody who knew me and knew the other place. So the only way I knew those people was through connecting.
0: And and I love that point that uh, Robert Cialdini uh, makes, the author of Influence, that you're always looking for commonalities when you're you're meeting a new person. You know, did you go to the same college? Um, Do you live in a particular place? Are you interested in a particular sport? Because I think if you can make these sort of very um, trivial connections, it shows that we're part of the same tribe, we're in the same gang. And, you know, human beings are very tribal, unfortunately. Um, But then then you can go on to the more um, in-depth, conversations about work and, you know, motivation and can we work together?
1: Yeah so I love that you're you're quoting Cialdini. He he is somebody that I, I I met very early in my academic career. He came and guest lectured in a class I was in and I was truly enamored with the work he did, how he did his work. And recently I've gotten to know him a bit uh by ho- hosting him on my podcast yeah. and he talks a lot about this notion of unity, feeling united connected yeah. with people and it, it's important. Um the the thing I would advise against is just going in and trying to go through your list, like almost playing bingo. Exactly. You know, oh, do you like this? Do you like that? Do you like that? You know, I, I think there are more subtle ways yeah. to do that. And a great way to do it is to share what's important to you yeah. and see how the other person responds. So you're right. Finding connection is important uh, and finding similarity is important, but you, you just don't want to go in like you're a detective grilling people until you, you get what uh, you're looking for.
0: Completely. I think, yeah, obviously, you be sensible, um, be authentic, uh, and yeah. yeah, don't try and be a, a detective. Uh, but I, I'm sure most of our listeners, hopefully, are, are sensible enough to do that. But right. actually, so sort of moving on from that, now say you were in the um, interview scenario, and I love that video you had on your YouTube channel. I actually put it on on my reframe and reset oh, your career page. Oh, so, can you. can you maybe give our listeners who haven't seen the video some thoughts about the interview scenario?
1: So I have a lot to say about interviewing and thank you for sharing that video. So to me, there's a lot you should do in advance of interviewing and interviewing is spontaneous, but you can certainly prepare. And that's that's the big counterintuitive idea about spontaneous speaking is you can actually prepare for it. So here, here's my advice. And I, I do a lot of coaching of people on interviewing skills. I teach in an MBA program at Stanford where a lot of our students go on to interview and I coach others. So first and foremost, you need to do a deep dive into the company itself. What is important to them? You should understand their mission, vision, and values. You should understand the scope and the variety of things that they do. You should also look into the leaders of the company, what's important to them. A lot of this is done through cyber stalking. Check out their LinkedIn profiles, their company bios, all of that. Then also think about what are the key themes you want to articulate about yourself. Maybe you are a very committed, dedicated employee. Maybe you have a certain set of skills around programming or finance that you want to make sure you communicate. And with each of those themes, and you should have three or four, I recommend, have specific examples that you can give that demonstrate those themes. And to my mind, there are three types of examples you should have. First is stories you can tell. So I can say, hey, I'm really good at program management. Well, tell a story about the time you brought a program to market and what that was like. Use data as well. Data are important. I saved the company 25% uh, of their effort, or, or I made things twice as fast in the implementation. Numbers can help. And then finally, if you can use testimonials from other people. So, you know, my boss gave me this award or we tried to do um, we some external person said that this was the best time they've ever gone through this process. So you understand the company, you understand your themes and you have support because the ultimate goal in an interview So you can do well in the moment is the goal is assembly of ideas rather than creation of ideas. So when somebody asks you a question, you go, oh, that links to this theme. And here's this example that I can bring. The bottom line is this. When you are interviewing, you are equipping your interviewer to tell your story to someone else. Most of the time, the person we interview with is not the person empowered to hire you on the spot. They have to get approval. They have to get a consensus. So they need to discuss you with somebody else. So the better you equip them by having clear themes and having support and evidence that they can bring, that helps.
0: No, and I love the way you frame that, Matt, because actually the the guy or the the lady you're interviewing, they need evidence from you so so that they can go uh, at at bat for you and say, Matt or Harsha, they're great candidates because of X, Y, and Z. And when they're putting you up against the other candidates that have come along, it's like sort of, you know, when you're getting promoted at work, um, you know, all the sort of managers are getting together and they have their favorite candidates. Um, and not, not everybody can get promoted. So they clearly need to have enough evidence, um, from you. Like, as you're saying, I've generated this amount of sales. Um, you know, the people in other departments or clients have said how wonderful Matt and Harsha are. And it's all, always about that third party evidence, that almost social proof. Now, after we've done this podcast, I can say I've had Matt Abrahams on my podcast. <laughs>
1: and I'll go one step further and say you're an amazing podcast host and you've got lots of value to bring so there you go a testimonial I'm not sure I'm not sure I carry much weight but there you go
0: yeah and and, and actually one interesting thing that um, I've heard uh, Sh- Shaldini say was that um, almost before the interview you get into the interview he says actually ask the interviewer what is it about me that you liked um, from my CV to invite me for the interview? So you're almost getting the interviewer to to sing your praises. And then you're sort of flipping around the psychology, which I think- I love sort of,
1: that. Yeah. I, I think that's a great first question. May I share my last question? Because I, I it really has helped me. Yeah. Whenever I am done interviewing, and it's been a long, long time since I've done this, but I coach lots of people who tell me this still works. They, at the end of interviews, the interviewer will often say, do you have any questions for me? Yeah. And I think it's very important to have a meaningful question there. I think the people who say, no, I think I got it. I think you miss an opportunity. Yeah. My question is always this. So imagine, Harsha, you asked me the question. You say, do you have any questions for me? I would say, what do you wish you would have asked when you were in my position interviewing for your job? And I let me tell you, that unlocks so much detail about the company, about the person. People say, oh, I really wish I would have asked about X or, you know, I I really wish I would have known this. And sometimes it's scary information. It's like, really, that goes on here? And other times it's just a wonderfully amazing information that just makes you more excited. So uh, I have found that question to be really powerful for me when I end interviews and others have told me it does the same for them
0: thanks for sharing that with us, Matt. I think difficult conversations uh yeah. at work or in your personal life they're obviously not not easy to have now sure. if if you have to have a uh, a discussion say with your boss about you're trying to get promoted but you're trying to figure out what it is that you need to do or say you need to have a chat with a um you're a manager and you're having a chat with a coworker who's not doing well. Now, I'm not saying they're clearly equatable, but are there any general themes that people can use for having these difficult conversations? Because I think a lot of times people think, oh, it's just too difficult. I'll kick the can down the road. But actually, I'm I'm more thinking, look, it's much better to try and deal with it. And, you know, it's never going to get any better. So it's almost better to have that sooner rather than later.
1: So timeliness to feedback or timeliness to to critical, crucial conversations is really important. Now, there's some factors to consider, so you don't wanna make things worse. Uh, You know, so you're in a meeting and somebody who constantly interrupts, interrupts, it might not be in your best interest in that moment to give the feedback there because of what else is being done, but you might want to say, hey, I just want to give you, uh, I just want to s- schedule some time right after this to, to have a conversation. So you put a pin in it. So people, that person who was interrupting recognizes, oh, I better you know, stay vigilant to what's going on here. When you are giving these difficult messages, when you are in a situation where you have to give critical feedback or or something of the sort, several things I think play out. One, you first have to be very clear on what your goal is. So uh, I I have a a dear friend, Uh, I've known him for for decades, great guy, super smart. He is really big. He is six six feet, eight inches tall. He has a really deep voice and he's incredibly intelligent. His boss once told him as a form of critical feedback, he said, stop being intimidating that's useless feedback, right? What what do you do with that? I mean, he can't can't shrink. He can't change his voice. He's smart. They wanted to keep him at the company. That's not good feedback. What the issue really was, and my friend and I talked a lot about, what the issue really was is that others in meetings were not contributing as much because this guy had such a great presence and he was so smart, what he contributed was really valuable. So better feedback would have been I'd like for you to continue contributing to meetings, but let others speak first and paraphrase what they've said before you speak. That is incredibly actionable advice that achieves the goal of inviting others to share instead of not sharing when this guy's in the room. So you have to know what is it you're after and what is it you want to see. Don't just give generic feedback. Second, you need to think about what might be leading to the behavior or not leading to the behavior that you want to see. You know, uh, I tell this story. I have two children. And when they were much younger, I was in my office working and I hear this loud crash coming from the kitchen. So I run out to see what's happening. There's my older son having reached above his head to grab a plate that had clearly fallen on the ground and shattered. Being a good parent, I notice there's no blood. What do I do? I start yelling at him. What are you doing on the counter? Why are you doing that? It's dangerous. He starts crying and through his tears, he said he was trying to get the plate down for his younger brother so they didn't have to interrupt me because they knew I was busy doing work. Well, how do you think I felt? I mean, here they are trying to help me and here I am yelling at him. Should he have been on the counter? No, he needed feedback, but not the way I gave it to him. Understanding what motivated the behavior might change the way you hold that critical conversation. So we have to think about those things in advance. And then finally, when we go into giving the feedback, and I hope we can talk about this in a little bit, you should structure your response. Listing things, itemizing things are is not useful to people. To me, these crucial conversations are actually invitations to problem solve. You're inviting the other to collaborate with you to fix the problem. So you need to frame it in a way, use a structure to help make that invitation without the person getting defensive. That was a long-winded answer, but there's so much you can do to make these critical, crucial, critical feedback situations better.
0: Moving on to your new book, um, I've enjoyed reading it. So can you tell us a little bit about it? And what, what are the sort of key takeaways that people should take, Matt?
1: So I could say a lot about that. So, so the, the book was written, the, the Think Faster, Talk Smarter, which is a derivative of the name of my podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart, is all about how to speak better in the moment. Most of our communication, personally and professionally, is spontaneous. We've already talked about a few of those situations, answering yeah. questions, giving feedback, making small talk, introducing yourselves, giving a tribute, making apologies. These are all situations where you have to speak in the moment. And most of us, if we've had any training in communication, it is always around planned or prepared presenting. It's a presentation, it's a pitch, it's a meeting that has an agenda. These are things that if we've learned, we've learned that modality, but not the spontaneous speaking. So the book's purpose is to help people feel better About their spontaneous communication and and really to do it well, three things have to be true. One, you have to adjust your mindset. Two, you have to work on your messaging and three, you have to practice and prepare for very specific situations. So the book is actually designed for that. It is, it is a very practical applied book. I have sections where I say, try this, or once you're done reading, practice, drill this because communication is not something you just read about and then do well. You actually have to put it into practice just like nobody becomes a great athlete just by reading about it you have to do it so that's the overarching purpose of the book and the overarching structure of the book
0: you've got this sort of model for going through communication is that like a six-step process or something do you just want to talk about that man
1: i'm certainly happy to talk about that so uh there's six steps they divide into two major categories mindset and messaging so in terms of mindset we have to start first by addressing anxiety Most people get nervous speaking, be it planned or spontaneous, and there are things we can do to reduce our anxiety. Second, we have to reduce the pressure we put on ourselves to be right, to be perfect. Many of the people who are listening to this, who are interviewing, we put so much pressure to give the right interview answer. I am here to tell you, as somebody who's studied communication for decades there is no right way to communicate. There's certainly better ways and worse ways, but there's no one right way. And by striving to be right, we actually make it more likely that we won't be that effective. The third, so we've got anxiety, reducing that perfection uh, uh, pressure we put on ourselves. The third is to see these spontaneous situations as opportunities as connection points, not as threats and challenges. Most people do not go into job interviews thinking, hey, this is a great opportunity for me to connect and learn. We go in saying, I have to perform, I have to defend my position, I have to show that I'm smart. And when we have that mindset of challenge and defensiveness, it limits what we can do. So we have to reframe these as opportunities. And then the fourth and final part of mindset is listening we don't listen very well we listen just enough to get the gist of what somebody is saying and then we move on beyond that so we need to listen better so we can better understand how to respond in the moment then we move to messaging and only two steps in messaging one is structure how you organize your content we don't just list things and then the final step i call it the f word of communication and that's not the naughty one it's focus Many of us ramble on and on and on when we're speaking spontaneously. We need to be concise, we need to be clear, and we need to be memorable. So those are the six steps. Each step comes with advice and guidance. And through some practice and work, everyone, introvert, extrovert, experienced speaker, novice speaker, everybody can get better at their spontaneous speaking.
0: And actually, there's so many sort of good points that you brought up there, Matt. I mean, with the mindset, I I completely agree there because you know, if you go into it thinking this is uh, not a a threatening situation, this is an opportunity for me to get my values across, for me to get my knowledge across, for me to build connections with these people. That's a very powerful way of um, looking at it. Um, And and actually, just talking about mindset, you would have come across, obviously, uh, Dr. Carol Dweck.
1: We've never met in person. We've talked over email. Uh, We are working on having her be a guest on my podcast. I think her work on mindset is really, really important. And in fact, in the book, I talk about some of the aspects. One of the things that I find really empowering in her work uh, is this notion of not yet. So somebody with a growth mindset sees that they can learn and evolve and grow in their abilities and recognizing that I don't have that ability currently But I have the potential to have that skill or that ability is so powerful. And she calls it the not yet approach. So it's not that I can never have it. It's that I just don't have it currently, not yet. And I think that is so powerful in so many areas of our lives, but especially in our spontaneous speaking.
0: And and I think in life where people look at almost things in a very binary sort of way, success or failure, I think that's such a good lesson because actually, you know, say with communication, the more you do it, the better you become. My first podcast episode, it It was okay, okay, but it wasn't that great. But now I've done 60 plus, you naturally get better because you do it more and more often. And actually if things go wrong or you forget your questions or it's much easier to ad lib because you've got that experience behind you. So, you know, I just love the points you make. I'm
1: sorry to interrupt, Harsha, but something you just said there is so important for developing communication skills. You have to take the time to reflect. The only way you learn is to think about what worked and what didn't work. There's that definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. That's how many of us communicate. We don't take the time to think about what worked and what didn't. For many of us, Our goal is just to get through our communication. It's not to actually learn from it and develop. So if you take the time to reflect, as you just said, podcasting is a great way to learn. I've I've learned so much about myself and about the topics that we talk about because I take time to reflect what worked and what didn't. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that is such a critical point to improving communication. Anybody who interviews for a job, when you're done, think about what worked in that interview, what didn't work. So the next time you can capitalize on it.
0: No, Matt, feel free to interrupt. You're the talents here. But, but, but actually, the, it is a great point you make because say, um, after the podcast, if you actually go back and you listen to what you've done, what the, the guest has said there are always ways of improving things. And, you know, ideally you're trying to get a sort of three to four minute soundbite and you're hopefully not trying to talk for too long. You're not trying to, hopefully the guest also doesn't talk for too long. So it's it's getting that, that sort of sweet spot. But I also like the point you make about fear, because say you're in um, you know, a, a public speaking situation or you're presenting and you know, clearly um, it's that sort of flight or fright mentality. You're in the mm-hmm. sort of threat mode you've got to figure out a way of you know almost dialing down your anxiety and reframing it and saying look this is an opportunity i could win a big client i could uh, make my boss look good and he would promote me um what are your sort of thoughts on how to manage anxiety in those sort of situations
1: yeah, this is a big one. And, in, and managing anxiety is is very, very important. And, and I like that you use the word manage. A lot of people say, how do I overcome? I don't think you do. I mean, 85% of people report being nervous in high stakes situations. I think the other 15% are likely lying. I think we can make a situation where they'd get nervous. Being nervous in communication is part of the human condition. We can, however, learn to manage it so it doesn't manage us. And we have to take a two-pronged approach to managing our anxiety. We have to deal with symptoms. That's what you physiologically experience in your body and your mind. And then they're the sources, the things that initiate and exacerbate the anxiety. So I'll give you some real quick examples on both those fronts. The single best thing you can do to calm yourself down physically and mentally is to take some deep belly breaths. The kind of thing you would do if you've ever done yoga or tai chi or qigong, where you really inflate your lower abdomen. And the key is the exhalation. You want the exhalation to be twice as long as the inhale. So if you take a three count in, take a six count out, you only have to do that a couple of times to slow down your autonomic physiology, to slow down your heart rate, to slow down your speaking, all of that, it benefits. So deep breaths can really help. Similarly, if you get shaky, a lot of people get shaky when they, they speak, Using big, broad movements, stepping towards the audience if you're physically in the same room, that can help. The shakiness is coming from adrenaline. Adrenaline's sole purpose is to move you from threat to safety. So anything you do that accommodates that can really help. So those are ways to manage some of the symptoms. And I have a ton of resources. I have a site called mattabrahams.com. I have resources. There's a whole set of resources dedicated just to anxiety management, my work, the work of others. We also have to think about sources. And we've talked about some of those sources. You know, striving to be perfect gets in the way. And so we we need to reframe perfection and, and have our goal be about connection. Uh, if we remind ourselves that when we speak, we are in service of our audience, we have value to bring. That takes the pressure off of ourselves. Am I doing it right? I'm just giving you information. You've asked me to speak, or you've asked to interview me, which means you think there's some value that I could bring here. And so when I reframe it that way, it takes out some of those teeth that come with trying to be perfect. Another source has to do with what we're trying to achieve. If I'm trying to get a job, that's my goal. I'm nervous that I won't get that job. My students are afraid they won't get a good grade. Yeah. All of the the anxiety is coming from a goal-based approach. That is, what's making us nervous is we are afraid of not achieving a potential future outcome. So to become more present-oriented reduces that. Because by definition, if I'm in the present, I'm not worried about the future. So how do I do that? I listen intently to what you say. I do something physical, like take a walk around the building before I go into the interview. Uh, I say tongue twisters. This is a trick I do. I say tongue twisters before I start. You can't say a tongue twister right and not be in the present moment. And it warms up your voice. So before you and I got on this call, I said a tongue twister a couple times to warm up my voice, as well as to get me present oriented. So lots of things we can do to manage symptoms and sources. And I encourage everybody to take some time to work on that.
0: Yeah, and I, I love the point that you make about staying in the present, because I think so many of us are looking fo- forward too far and actually just listen to what the interviewer is saying or what somebody is asking you. And and actually that just focusing then, it just does take the nerves away. Um, but moving on to another bit in your book, um, the Q&A section, because I think that is a really interesting thing, because... You can prepare for, say, giving a presentation, but then what happens afterwards is is slightly out of your control. Um, right. You just don't know what's gonna happen. Um, and have you ever done Toastmasters, Matt? Clearly they talk about you know, the more you, you practice and you have your table topics, and actually that spontaneous thing of, you, know, you get the question, you always repeat the question and you say, oh, that's a good question. And that buys you time to start thinking, what am I gonna say?
1: I love Toastmasters. I was a Toastmaster for a little bit of time. I actually just spoke at their international convention. I am a huge proponent of what they do. If your listeners are not familiar with Toastmasters, I encourage them to check it out. It's very reasonably priced. I mean, it's ridiculously reasonably priced. Uh, And you meet weekly with people who are like-minded trying to improve their communication and leadership skills. And really what it does is it gives you feedback and opportunities to practice. Now, you did say one, thing that i do not agree with so uh, sometimes we do need time to to think if somebody asks us a question we need to process we need to think about our answer maybe we need to think about the most appropriate way to give feedback i am not a big fan of saying good question to give us that time because if i'm constantly doing that imagine i have five questions in a row and i go oh good question good question good it loses value i would much rather you do one of three things either just pause silence is not a bad thing Two, ask a follow-up question to clarify what you've been asked. Or three, do a paraphrase where you summarize what the question is about. All of those, I think, are much more valuable than saying good question. Now, occasionally, you get a really good question, in which case, I think you should say good question. But if you do it all the time, you devalue it. And it looks like a trick.
0: I'm from a sporting background, so I'm very coachable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, okay there you go very good but i, I can take you know,
1: everybody has to find their own style but that's one that's a pet peeve i have when people always say good question good question good question because not every question is a good question anybody who's ever taught knows that's true
0: <laughs> very good and, and actually one, one interesting thing you brought up there was this idea of silence you, maybe you're discussing your appraisal or compensation with your boss And silences, I think, are very powerful sometimes in that situation. I mean, what's all actually in any uh, uh, sort of conversation type situation?
1: Silence is really important. And many of us feel very uncomfortable with silence. A lot of work gets done in silence by an audience. They're processing information they're forming their thoughts, they're thinking about how they can apply what they've said. I mean, if you think about it, when you're speaking, your audience is following you. And when you come to silence, they catch up. And there's some sense of relief with that connection. If I'm constantly talking and never pausing, you're constantly chasing after me. And it can be exhausting to listen to a really fast talker, for sure. So pausing is important, taking a break. And Forcing ourselves when we are in the listener's position to really be silent for a moment, to allow the other person to finish and to feel really listened to is important. If you finish talking and I immediately jump in, that doesn't feel so good, right? So if I let it sit for a moment, it demonstrates I'm respecting you and giving you the floor to say even more. So I think silence is really powerful. I used to, when I taught a public speaking class, and I haven't taught this class for a number of years, uh, I used to have a moment of silence in class where every student got up in front of the class and for 90 seconds stood there in silence. It was so hard, but my students would tell me it was one of the most powerful experiences they had in the class because it helped them to realize that it was not awful. Many of us fear silence and they got through it and they said, you know, it wasn't bad. So, so learning to be in silence is a good thing.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. When you're giving a, a talk or a presentation, sometimes say if you make a, a joke, you actually need to give a pause because our brains just can't catch up. And the, and the really you know, sad thing is sometimes you can make a really good joke and because you go on so quickly, it's just completely lost. Um,
1: isn't that right, Mark? Yes, absolutely. And it's not just with jokes, with any engaging yeah. technique. Yeah. If I say something profound, <laughs> if I ask you to, to take a poll, yeah. you have to pause. I, I believe the most masterful communicators, planned or spontaneous, know how to play with silence. They know how to play with rhythm in their voices and cadence, and all of this is what adds to how we perceive them and their messages.
0: No, that's that's great. And and see in a in a workplace scenario, um, what sort of thoughts would you give for our listeners about how can you stand out there without you know being too brash?
1: Certainly. So I talk a lot about this. You want to be confident, but not arrogant. And it's a fine line sometimes. And I would recommend showing versus telling is the way to approach it. You can seem brash, egotistical, braggadocious. If you just list things like I was the best salesperson last year, or I've closed this many deals, or my boss told me I'm the best. You know, if I'm listing things, itemizing things, it's, it's very different than than me showing you how so I might you might ask me you know talk to me about uh your your approach to sales or or how are you at selling things rather than say I'm great and I do this I might say the the last deal I closed uh took too much yeah. less than we expected and it happened because I was able to connect so I'm, I'm telling you the story and in the story yeah. I'm demonstrating my abilities this does two things one it makes me sound less braggadocious and two by telling you a story that you can turn around and tell to somebody else it makes it much easier for you to represent me if I just give yeah. you my LinkedIn profile with a list of information it's hard to remember all of that so there are there are really two ways to establish your credibility and demonstrate confidence one i call your schooling your college and career credibility that's the list or itemization of what you've done and then i call it costco and i'm not sure costco is is all over the world but it's a big store that sells (laughs) lots of stuff and they give lots of free samples When I was in grad school, I I survived essentially going to Costco once or twice (laughs) a week and and eating a lot of their free samples. But what Costco, I mean, why would they give away free things? Because you try it, you experience it. And based on that experience, you say, yes, I want this. So if you can show people, give them an experience of your abilities, they're going to see you as credible and confident in a very different way than if you just list it. So I often tell people, lean into Costco credibility, not career and college credibility.
0: No, I love that point because I think, you know, uh, if you can tell stories, it's so, firstly, that it's much more memorable. It will resonate with whoever you're telling. It's much easier for them to go and explain that to somebody else as, oh, Matt, he he told me the story about how he won this client and all the work that he had put in and how he had cleverly done the presentation.
1: Absolutely. Totally. Storytelling is really powerful and memorable. Our brains are wired to take story in and remember it. Our brains are not wired for lists of information. I interviewed a tremendous number of neuroscientists, both on my podcast and for my book, that talk about the power of storytelling. We spin up so many brain systems when you tell stories that make it more vivid and memorable. Uh, that really, really makes a difference. And a key component of that is adding emotion in. A lot of people, especially when job interviewing, et cetera, just stay to the facts. When you tell a story, you can bring in some emotion and emotions are much more memorable and moving than just information.
0: Yeah, and, and I think also going back to sort of a presentation, if you've scripted the whole thing, um, I, mean, I mean, clearly you have to have some sort of structure, but you lose that spontaneity. And sometimes I think when you're in the moment, um, stuff just comes to you and you can make these sort of off the cuff comments. Because I think if you've really worked hard and prepared, then you have a certain level of mastery in that subject. And sometimes these insights just come to you um, without thinking. So, you know, clearly you have to have some flexibility as well when you're presenting or communicating or whatever to be able to put in these nuggets of wisdom which may come to you.
1: You're absolutely right. And and part of preparing for spontaneity is to think through some of those stories so when i coach executives i'll say you should have a stockpile of a few stories that you can tell that support some of your key vision mission and values of your company so that you can pull those in and it's not that you've memorized the stories but it's the power of story that can help you and just by thinking through these in advance it makes a lot of sense to do
0: Brilliant. But are there any other key messages uh, for our listeners, which um, we fail to cover um, in our discussion?
1: There's one that, and thank you for the opportunity to to uh, fill in any blanks that I've perceived. Uh, there's one I'd like to spend a little bit of time yeah, sure. talking about, and it dovetails nicely off this notion of story. Structure is really, really important when we communicate. And to me, structure is a logical connection of ideas, beginning, middles, and ends. And there are lots of structures that you can lean into when you're communicating. And so I encourage people to to think about ways of positioning their messages. So for example, one of my favorite structures in the whole world is what so what, now what? Three simple questions. And by answering these questions, you can tell a lot. So imagine somebody says, share with me one of the skills that you bring to this position. So I might say, communication is really important in this role as a trainer. Uh, it helps people to better understand the information that you're teaching. That's the what. In this role, I can bring to bear my 20 years of communication experience to really tailor the information to your participants, to your students. That's the so what. The now what is, I'd love to share with you a few examples of how I've done that in the past. So what, so what, now what is a way of presenting information. And it's not just for answering questions. It could be used for giving feedback, writing emails, having a structure, a beginning and a middle and an end can really, really help you.
0: Yeah, I was watching one of your previous interviews and you really need to think about the audience and what it is they want. Because say you're meeting a high level executive, he's just concerned about, okay, I don't really need to know about the operational issues. It's just tell me what is the bottom line? How much is this going to revenue or profit? And what are the risks? So literally like profit risks and downsides, and that's it. But really tailor your message
1: um, to the audience. The most frequent bit of advice given across the hundred or so episodes I've done of my podcast, which is all about communication, is exactly what you said. The biggest bit of advice that comes from almost everybody I talk to said in different ways, know your audience. It's about them. It's not about you. You're in service of your audience. Uh, one of my favorite uh, versions of this, which is yet to be released, uh, Julian Treasure, who's an expert at listening and teaching listening skills, says, what is the sp- What is the listening I am speaking into? And I love that. That's another way of saying, what's your audience care about? So yes, all of these that that's an an incredibly important point. And the, the, what your audience is looking for, what they need should determine, as you said, the structure that you use
0: fantastic. And actually, the other thing I picked up was something your mother told you was, "Tell the time, Tell the time, don't build the clock." I l- Remember I, I talked
1: about focus. Yes, my mother has a yeah. saying. I know she didn't create it, but it's, "Tell the time, don't build the clock." A lot of us are clock builders, and we do this for several reasons. One, we want to rationalize and justify what it is we're saying, so we want to give background. Sometimes we want to just demonstrate how smart and capable we are, so we go all into this detail that's superfluous. I like to tell people, tell the time. And if people want to know how you built the clock, they'll ask. Let them guide you. Don't you assume that they need to know that.
0: Fantastic. And and Matt, before we end, now, how can people get in touch with you? Obviously, you're on LinkedIn. You've got a website. And all of this will be on on the show notes.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, clearly, uh, your website sounds really (laughs) useful. So thank you. Um, So a single best place to find me is mattabrahams.com. You can listen to the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast. It's everywhere that podcasts exist. Consider buying the book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter. And as you said, I'm a huge user of LinkedIn. Please connect with me. Happy to answer your questions there as well.
0: And and you have a YouTube channel as well.
1: I do have, thank you. I do (laughs) have a YouTube channel. (laughs) I have lots of of videos up there, lots of short videos that, uh, that I hope are directly applied
0: brilliant and Matt one final thing um is there anybody you'd like to give a shout out to who's helped you in your life or career apart from your mom's great phrase tell the time
1: so I remember we started with you asking me a question expecting one answer and I gave you many I'm going to give you many so first and foremost my family my parents my wife my kids incredibly supportive and helpful uh I have studied martial arts for four decades my I've had one instructor primarily throughout that time He's been hugely impactful in my life. And one of my early teachers, Philip Zimbardo, uh, was an amazing professor, but he also taught me how to tell story, how to be engaged with the research you do, and primarily how to do work that really helps people. So uh, those are are some of the biggest impact, uh, people who've had impact, and certainly the teams that support me around my podcast and book uh, have helped me a lot too.
0: Brilliant. Well, Matt, it's been such a pleasure. Um, thank you for taking the time, and I'm sure our listeners will get huge value from your um you know, the things that you've said today. Well, well, thank
1: you, and can keep up the good work. Your podcast is a great one, and I've learned a lot from you as well.
0: Thanks, Matt. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such a fun interview. If you'd like to listen to more episodes, please subscribe to the podcast which is available on your favorite providers, and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening, wishing you success with your career. I hope you will join me again in the future.